From Twin Cities Business, this is By All Means, a show about innovation, drive, and purpose, and the leaders who make business work in Minnesota. I'm Allison Kaplan, your host and editor-in-chief of Twin Cities Business Magazine. We're coming to you from the studios of our presenting sponsor, the University of St. Thomas's Opus College of Business, serving more than 3,000 students enrolled in its undergraduate and graduate business programs. The college develops effective, principled business leaders who think globally and act ethically. And now, by all means. Abilitech Medical is a medical device startup based in Eden Prairie, Minnesota, that's been working since 2016 on one revolutionary idea, developing the first powered orthotic device that helps patients with upper limb weakness or injury to use their arms to do everyday things like eat and drink and open a door and use a computer. Even before launching its first of its kind device, Abilitech won numerous awards, including the Minnesota Cup startup competition and and the Techni Awards. The product will be ready for patients later this year in 2020. But the process of getting there from idea to prototype to funding, that's what we're going to talk about today with founder Angie Conley. Angie, thank you so much for joining us. Great. Happy to be part of this. Well, and I'm sorry that we we can't do it uh, in person these days. Um, maybe that's a, a good place to start before we jump into your background. Where, where are you right now? I'm at our office in Eden Prairie, Minnesota. We moved in February and to some beautiful new office on Nine Mile Creek and uh, looking out my window at the beautiful day, we... Uh, we have a small manufacturing or engineering office in downtown St. Paul, but we are moving our operations to Eden Prairie. So you're going to be, everything it, will be there, office and manufacturing all in one place? Well, we use Nortec as our manufacturer, so that will be in Malacca, Minnesota, but we do have some test equipment for our um, testing that is required for FDA. Got it. And and do you, are you going into the office every day or is your team working remotely? You know, we're all, it's, it's, it's not a surprise. We can be really efficient uh, working from home. So I am in the office maybe once every other week. And uh, we, we just happen to have a new employee start yesterday Ryan Bauer, um, healing from a long tenured history in med device and at Medtronic. And so we wanted to welcome him as our team. And so we're all wearing masks and there are five of us in a, in a big conference room, but that's unusual. Most <laughs> yeah. of it is uh, go to meetings and zoom and Google hangouts and, right. uh, and we're, we're pretty productive. Yeah, I bet. We, we're all finding new ways. And I, I we'll talk a little more about that. But just so that people understand a little more about your background and how you got here to this exciting place, um, l- let's go back. Even even before your days with Medtronic, um, what did what did you want to be when you grew up? What, what did you go to college in intending intending to study? Well, I entered college at St. Thomas when it was St. Thomas College uh, with a with a broad lens because I wasn't sure. I will say that I always had the interest in I'm a daughter of a pediatric cardiologist and used to do grand rounds with my dad when I was little and was always interested in science and um, helping people. And then in college, I became interested in the business. Um, I think I came in undeclared. I graduated with a marketing and an English degree. And, uh, you know, wanted to 
make an impact. And, and I found my way to Medtronic after a few different internships at 3M and, um, and controlled data and a publishing company and an ad agency. I tried on a lot of hats and um, went to Medtronic because it allowed me to meet that goal of helping people. And so, and also I found it really interesting work. And um, so when you're in the discipline of maybe marketing or writing, Sometimes things get boring and there's always some part of your job you don't like, but with that greater mission of having an impact, it always made the difference for me to keep, you know, fully engaged. Sure. So it started out with some obviously big companies. Was entrepreneurship something that was even on your radar? I think when I was maybe a junior or senior, they added the entrepreneurship major. And um, to be honest, I, I didn't even know what it was. Hmm. I thought it was a little fluffy and, you know, and, and now it's certainly not. Um, and uh, maybe maybe we added that part out. <laughs> I shouldn't say that. <laughs> no, but I, but I mean, was, um, was entrepreneur, the idea of starting your own thing or running your own business, was that something that you ever considered? Yeah, I was always a little entrepreneurial, um, even growing up. Uh, even I, I made my own business in high school where we had a daycare in the park. It, we called it Fun Camp with actually, coincidentally, um, my best friend in high school, Allison Kaplan, a different <laughs> Allison, um, which is a small world. Yeah. But we had, you know, I think at the time you could get paid 2 or $3 an hour for babysitting, which is really dating me. And, uh, and we had about 10 to 14 kids. And so we got an dollar an hour. So we got about triple the, and, and I did that. That was pretty successful for a couple years. Um, so, you know, doing things like that. And I was always sort of a, a dreamer, a daydreamer, but a creator. And I like to build things and plan. Sure. So, so while you were at Medtronic and you were there for, for how long were you there? Boy, I was at Medtronic for over seven years, and then I went back into some consulting, and I returned for a little while uh, to EV3 before the Covidian acquisition Okay, um, as a consultant, so, so was, in and out. Was it during that time that you started thinking about what is now a Billitech, or how did you come up with this idea? Well, after I left Medtronic, uh, I went to do some medical device consulting and popped around a little bit. I was recruited to a nonprofit called Magic Arms, where I was executive director and only employee, I'll add, uh, to commercialize a 3D printed exoskeleton for kids with rare orphan conditions. Hmm. And um, I thought the technology was going to be further along. It, uh, I raised the money to fit. Uh, 12 different patients over an 18-month span. And much to my disappointment, it just wasn't ready to be commercialized. There was always a problem and, and nobody used it. And so what I did is that introduced me to the problem. And I saw children moving their arms for the first time ever. And they, the parents looked like they saw a ghost and would just break down into tears. And yet... Uh, couple weeks later, people didn't use our device. And so it was really clear to me and it was a really frustrating experience because I'm not an engineer. I couldn't fix the problem, even though I tried to 
get um, volunteer engineers to just tweak it or do improve um, nothing really it was it needed to be um, the problem needed to be studied and a new solution needed to be built so when it was clear that Magic Arms didn't have a sustainable platform uh, to be even pay for our QuickBooks, I um, I left and I went to the Minnesota Business Cup and I looked at a larger market because while at Magic Arms, I received just a lot of phone calls, some from friends and emails that said, can you help my sister, my mother, my brother with MS, ALS, spinal cord stroke? Hmm. And, um, you know, they they saw the potential for what we were doing, and so did I. And yet at Magic Arms, I was, had to be really narrowly focused on children um, because we had such limited resources. So studying the Minnesota Business Cup was an opportunity to study a larger problem and understand what that business opportunity was, I created um, three meaningful pieces of uh, or assets. Um, one, a one-minute video, uh, a 10-page business plan, and, and probably a short pitch deck. With that, I was able to raise money, and I got incredibly lucky. And the first person I pitched, the first group, was able to fund us. Wow. And so by the end of 20, I founded Abilitech, um, which... We started as Olympics Medical, um, but I soon discovered and was warned by our lawyers that Olympics was going to be um, challenged by the Olympic National Committee, mm. and so you, we we had to we had to rebrand, and the sooner the better. Because, you probably don't want to go up you know, against them. Yeah, yeah. What gave you the confidence that you would be more successful on your own than you were working for that organization? Well, it was really the ability to raise the real kind of money to build a first-rate team. I mean, I had teams of you know people who give two or three hours at a time um, to you know maybe in a month um, to help advance, but we were we were not successful. I mean, it just couldn't. This was this product, the technology. We've been at it for over three years trying to design the product requirements and. And have the funding to really build. It's a it's a catch. I don't. I'm not aware of any nonprofits that have ever been able to become a medical device company. Mm. And as much as I tried to make that happen, and um, it just it's it's nearly impossible because it takes a lot of money, um, and you've got to have full time employees to be able to. Um, do it. Now, I, I'll say that maybe academia can do that with grants. Um, and what you have there often is, um, which is the, the Magic Arms technology was developed out of Nemours Hospital in Delaware. And it was kind of developed in a um, vacuum, in a lab with very little input from users. And so when I founded Abilitech, I had the goal that that wouldn't happen and that we would always have, you know, stay in front of the problem and be, you know, meet with a clinician or a patient every week uh, to be able to continually refine what we're trying to do and make sure that we were as custom and the voice of customer was really present. Sure. So, 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 okay. So, so you leave magic arm, you, you have identified a major need. You have the confidence that there could be a solution if you had the money and the right people to build it. Is that 
fair to say? Yeah, right. And I think Minnesota Business Cup, I mean, it didn't ever go into that. It was just like, okay, this isn't working. It's a nonprofit. This isn't working. This didn't work. We tried. We didn't get this grant. We didn't do this. And 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 it was just finally coming to a realization. I brought in somebody who used to lead guidance, um, hit the engineering and have 1,300 engineers. And, and I said, can we can we solve this problem with these resources? How do we? And he was like, there's no way, you know, you've got a budget of $50,000 a year and um, there's no way we can, we can really solve that. So um, then the soda cup, when I went there, that gave me the confidence and the structure um, and the know-how It's almost like, a mini MBA light, you know. Um, so let's just ex- let's just explain to people for who aren't familiar with Minnesota Cup uh, how it works. I mean, it's it's basically it's an amazing incubator for for new businesses for startups. Right. Yeah. And so you know, you go. People go in. There's eight different categories. Uh, they there were two thousand applications last year, maybe. Um, and so of those, then they select. Uh, 10 um, semifinalists in each of the eight. So they narrow it down the pool to 80 people. And then within that, there's they give you an award within each of your, like might be an agriculture or a, um, education or a med device sector. And there, so there's eight different kinds. And um, from that, then you compete with the others, but you're also assigned mentors. And so you're, you know, they have these all these great business people, of course, with Medtronic being here and all the different medical device companies that have spun off. There are just a huge, tremendous pool. And then we've got United Healthcare on top of it. So we have a tremendous pool of um, talent to draw on and build a great team here and as well mentors. And so I was able to get some great mentors um, from you know, at each of the three stages to, you know, the three times that I, I, I actually, I didn't win the first year, of course, I was against Stemonics and mm. uh, they had several government contracts and were just, you know, three, four years ahead of where we were. And we were just at a concept. I was at a concept stage where I was exploring an idea, but the Minnesota Business Cup helped provide that guidance for me to kind of the structure of how to build a successful company and kind of how to how to raise money. Right. And so that's that's where it all began. And then I refined and um, John Zencraft, my co-founder, and I went and hired a team of engineers. Uh, we studied. I had studied the problem. I had met fifty different clinicians, probably, and the twelve patients that I had um, fit. And I understood um, what the former device didn't do and what it needed to do. And when we applied, we came up with a different, you know, a spring-based platform instead of rubber bands. And that helped. And then we moved from just a passive device where with the rubber band at Magic Arms, there were two major um, customer complaints. One was... Um, the arms floated in space. They never rested. So some of these kids with arthropoposis, which is really the main population that 
magic arms um, focused on, they would walk down the hall and their arms floated a little bit like Frankenstein down mm. the hallway. And yeah. So we knew we needed, and then um, to, to rest them. And then we also, they have these athletic bands just like at the PT, different colors that had to be changed by a caregiver on the upper arm and forearm. And so if you were doing desk work, you needed one set. And if you needed to do something at an easel or move your hands up, you needed another set. And then your arms were suspended in that plane. And so we kind of chased that with um, the Billatech first generation. And what we decided was, you know, this passive does not address that floating in the space. People want to be able to raise their, you know, rest their arms. And so we went to a hybrid um, model which uh, with motors that allowed us to um, rest the device, but it also allowed us to adjust the support mechanism and what it means in our current, you know, the mechanics is the, the tension of the spring. So you would need a different level of support for a spoon, a cell phone, and a can of Coke. Hmm. And to be able to raise those, and so a patient can now hit an accessibility switch and toggle between those three levels of support, which is really quite unique to our IP and um, the springs as well. And so they can do that themselves? Yeah, they can. They, um, they, most of these patients will have some finger function so that they can um, hit that button. And if they don't and they can only use their head, they can mount it up near their um near their head and, and um, bump it with their with all you know, of their ear or head or you know that's very common in the accessibility world or assistive technology world. With all of your trials, is there is there one that that stands out? I mean, is there a moment when you saw someone who maybe didn't have the ability to raise a can of Coke to by themselves suddenly was able to do that, or was there anything like that that really kind of crystallized it for you? Yeah, that's the best part of our job is to meet those patients where we're, the light just goes on in their eyes and they're like, yeah, I can't do that. And we said, well, let's see how far you can get. And, you know, we're, we're never sure what we're going to expect. Um, and um, in, in some of these preclinical trials and assessing, you know, patient strength and then all of a sudden this light goes on and Many times uh, there are tears, you know, hmm. they'll just burst and I'll never forget um, a woman, Jerry Joe, who came into our office and um, she's in a wheelchair and can use her hand a little bit, but then um, could never lift with one hand and she just burst into tears and so did her personal care attendant and we cried and we're just trying to hold our little iPhone steady so that <laughs> we could capture it all and be quiet but it was pretty hard um, and that's when your heart sings and you feel like this is the moment this is this is what we're working so hard for around the clock right and so I really try hard to get those type of you know our engineers involved so that they can feel that um, and see that transformation. Um, and we have had, you know, a handful of different people have that experience in our preclinical work. Um, it's really exciting. I bet. So you're you're working with mentors. You're you're turning this idea into a business plan. How do you, what do you do first? Do you, what comes first? Raising the money, finding the engineers who actually were able to, to work on this with you? How did you go about things? 
you know, it's different in every single person's case. For me, the sequence was I had learned about the problem um, from my time at Magic Arms. I had the skills from Medtronic to solve that um, and, and the business acumen to develop a plan. It was guided by the Minnesota Cup infrastructure and the um, mentorship that I had. And so for me, it, that's that was I, I explored this and then I went and was able to raise the money. Raising money uh, in a venture capital or angel world was something I had never done before. I'd certainly done tons, you know, created tons of business plans in my life. So I knew how to do that. Um, I understood the FDA and, and some of the manufacturing. One of the, one of the things I always tell people is in a startup, you get to wear and you're <laughs> one of my um, colleagues from Medtronic who was on our board once upon a time, or, you know, in the early years, um, Don Santel said, to me, learn how to be comfortable being uncomfortable. And that I just have to kind of smile every time I step into a new situation. And um, you're not always going to know the answer because you can't be an expert of everything and you just have to prioritize. So I knew how to do a business plan. I understood the problem. I learned how to raise money. I raised $12 million to date. Um, and on top of that, we've done some grant funding. And then with after I wrote, raised the first round of financing, which was $2.3 million, I was able to hire the team, pick the engineers, and develop. And we, we really, the first year, we were just two in place. And it made more sense to get a little bit of a mechanical engine, a little bit of different people's time instead of full-time people. And then you just have to kind of weigh over the course of the development of the business where that break-even is. So the exciting part is, is we had a new engineer start yesterday, um, and we're bringing a lot of that uh, talent and kind of building capacity in-house now. So that's exciting stage uh, where we have full-time people working on this and um, really own the problem. Sure. It, it's got to feel kind of weird, I would think, at certain points when when you're raising money or when you've actually even raised it and, and you're out there pitching a, a business that's going to do this amazing thing but doesn't actually have a product yet. Yeah, that's not atypical. I mean, that's early stage med device. I'll say that's one of the biggest challenges in um, fundraising is that early stage med device um, is is hard to navigate. And so a lot of that is based on the team mm-hmm. and um, the fundraising. What you'll see if you look historically is that funding pool has shrunk considerably. Most of the funding that you'll find for medical device is um, after you have an FDA um, approval. In our case, we're, there's three classes in FDA, one, two, and three. Three is an implantable. We're class one. We're considered an orthotic brace. So theoretically, we could be sold on Amazon. Hmm. Um, and then, of course, we need a prescription because we need reimbursement. So, uh Right. That your yeah, absolutely. Um, I, when you say that the the funding pool is shrinking, why is that? And I and I'm also curious if you encountered, 
you know, what was the reaction? We hear over and over what a small, small piece of the VC pie women get versus men. You were new to this. How did it go for you? Well, um, this came as a big surprise to me. I will say that, um, one, Minnesota is very conservative in our funding. Most of the uh, medical device funding is on the coast. You'll you'll find almost I mean, a couple different groups of other um, Minnesota medical device startup CEOs and almost uniformly, everybody gets their money outside of Minnesota. We just have kind of a conservative nature, and it, which is just um, baffling to me because of how many large med device companies we have. Right. Um, and then to your second point of women in venture capital, uh, we get less than 3% of venture capital women do. And that changes when you, um, if you go, if there's a woman who raises in the company of men. And so uh, at first I didn't give any credence to this. And I thought baloney, I was the only girl who played on an all boys soccer team growing <laughs> up. And, you know, I'm going to prove them wrong. And this is ridiculous. And I have been very humbled by that. It is, it's too bad. Um, there's, there's even a much greater racial bias than this. Um, so, you know, I think black women get less than, you know, point like, oh, something less right. than a half of a percent of venture capital. So, uh, but it's, it's, it's astounding. And then when you look at um, the statistics of women-led companies, or countries. <laughs> and we often outperform um, and certainly diverse um, boards, diverse companies outperform. It's just, um, it's factual. Yeah. So did you did you feel that? Did you feel that reluctance just when you walked into the room? And, and how did you deal with it? I, I, I don't know that it's always tangible. Sometimes it is. Um, there are two kinds of questions that are um, studied, and there's thankfully a lot of um, people that are dedicated to start funding women-led um, companies. But there are you can often recognize whether it's a promotional question or a limiting question, and and that's kind of an interesting behavioral science thing. Um, but it I've learned a lot to recognize that and then how to address it. And um, it, sometimes, and and I'll say it's the older white male uh, banker who will ask, "How do you know?" or "Why should I believe?" type of those kind of questions. And then, if you get a, a male up there, they don't get those same questions. So if you if you bite on the wrong question and you don't answer it, you find yourself in this trajectory of e coming to a different answer, which doesn't necessarily shine. And so you want to learn how to understand and read those questions and if and when you can um, turn the conversation. It's, it's something that's hard to do when you're in front of people and if you're at all a little nervous. Um, but it is, I think it's important for people to be aware of. We yeah. just get to ask different questions, convince me questions hmm. instead of, um, you know, you've done this and this and this, and you get some building questions. And so to be perfectly honest, 
there are times where I brought um, a male counterpart to help me fundraise, and it may change the way I do fundraising going forward. It's too bad, but um, I, it is, it's, it's the rules of the um, landscape right now. And so, you know, at my next raise, I think it will be easier, and it sounds ridiculous, and I cringe when I say this, but I do. I, I think I'll raise with another guy. Oh. It's just hard to believe that we're still having this conversation in 2020. But um, yeah, you are. It you is. Are, but look at our, our race relation. I mean, we've right. got a long way to go. Yes, we do. <laughs> so, yes, we do. A long way to go. So where did you find success? Was it outside of Minnesota? Who jumped at the opportunity? Yeah, well, we've had a lot of love from Texas is what I'll say. Hmm. We've had two major investors there. Um, one was our first investment who um, participated in every round, BIOS Partners. And then um, uh, they brought in a family office. And then we have a group out of San Francisco um, led by a woman who I met at a um, conference and man, uh, DEFTA partners, Alona Baum is awesome. And then, um, recently I was introduced, uh, to, uh, a family office here in Minnesota that happens to own, um, part of Nortech and we got to be, um, you know, conversational, and they ended up investing. They had a nice um, exit of of some companies, and so they they said, "Why don't you come in? Let let meet my family." And um, four boys and a um, their mom, who's so sweet, came in mm-hmm. and with her four boys standing behind in my office, and um, they they happened to be also our landlord, and uh, and said, "We have some good news for you." And she gave me a big hug, and it was like just this awesome, awesome, amazing moment. Was there something in your pitches that you think would would really captivate? the VCs, was there something that you could say or a way that you could make this, you know, really tangible for them? You know, videos speak, um, uh, you know, louder than anything you can, you can provide. So our patient videos, a side by side of without our device and how people eat or lift a glass or brush their teeth compared to how, the, what, what they can do with our device is pretty astounding. And then people connect the dots. This is a problem that most people have not thought of before. In fact, we spoke with uh, somebody who worked his whole career with MS patients. And he said, oh my gosh, I've thought all my time about drugs, about therapy, about wheelchairs. I've never thought about solving the problem that they can't use their arms. Hmm. This is so exciting. And so, you know, it, just to be able to, it's it's just, it's, it's an exciting opportunity to really fill an unmet need and change a lot of lives, not just the patient, but their caregivers. And, and that's something that has been acutely aware with our goal of being in front of patients so often is understanding how much sacrifice these caregivers and the impact to their quality of life and and mental health and economic life. One in three people leave a job to care for a loved one with the disabilities that we have, you know, we serve. And um, that, that really changes the dynamic of their household. I bet. Yeah. Um, So the last couple of years have been spent 
I imagine in research and development and, and perfecting this product, right? I mean, how has it been smooth sailing? Has it been just getting from point A to point B? Have you hit any roadblocks? Oh, yeah. There's never. Um, <laughs> it's always something. And that's just part of the landscape and part of the startup. And, you know, pivot is probably overused, but you get new information and and you change. Now, there's a balance of being able to say this is the product we're going to bring and it's going to change lives. And then the next gen, we can do better. But we are always learning. Um, and there's kind of a, an expression, win or learn. And you just have to embrace that new knowledge and fail forward. And so there, it's bumpy, but I don't know any startup that couldn't say any differently. Right. I mean, this is it's just, and but but you never the landscape. You, you never there was never a point where you thought oh what am I doing here this this isn't going to happen I mean you were you always had the confidence yeah I mean you get frustrated but mission is what carries you I mean we're doing something really special and when you get to see people and their patients and their lives that are you're changing and their caregivers or family members. Um, that's one of the biggest reasons why I have that goal, not just to, you know, have the best product, but also to motivate our team because we are, you know, there are long hours and weekends and grants and tedious work and, um, it's, it's, it can be a grind and, um, yet, you know, I would never walk away from my patients. Hmm. I will never stop trying to like deliver the best solution I can to help. If this is of my imprint on the world and the ability to try to help solve this problem, then we're just going to keep getting better and better. So where are you right now? The 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 product is is soon to be available to patients. That's right. We're going to target. We're targeting early this fall. Um, we are just doing a stage called design verification and testing. So. We are testing 18 different units um, for longevity and just to predict if there's any sort of failure or education needs or manufacturing changes we need to uh, make before we go to market. Um, prior to this, we did a, a, a the same battery of tests for five devices, which we were able to make some refinements for the design changes. And now we're doing it on a larger scale. We expect to find, you know, things that we want to solve will definitely address anything that would be a patient safety issue, which we don't anticipate. Um, and then there's some kind of want to have and, you know, ha- nice to have and have to have. And you just have to figure out what's the impact to the schedule and and the cost. And so we're, that's where we are. We're doing the design verification and testing. We're gearing up um, in, a, in a week where we'll begin doing that. And then once we complete it, uh, we will get our FDA listing. It's class one, so it's like filing your taxes you file online. Hmm. Um, that's a way oversimplification of the process. I'm sure. And I'm really glad that I have a skilled rock star team in place that everybody you know, has done this before um, to be able to help guide us. Anything related to to medical just makes my head spin and seems so complicated as far as then how do you bring it to market? How are you selling to doctors? Are you selling directly to patients? Have you figured all of that out, I imagine? Yeah, so this too evolves, especially in light of COVID. So um, topical question, but 
you know, with COVID, we have had three of our major uh, meetings cancel. And so we have missed the opportunity to get in front of a couple thousand different clinicians and some patients mm. and, and spread the word that look what our device and are you right for our device and et cetera. So uh, we uh, had to kind of retool and look and see how else can we reach these patients. And so we've taken some of that budget and put it into social media, Google AdWords, Facebook, and we're starting to retool and get ready um, to do telehealth screening where we um, help let patients know about our device and and then we'll help screen to see if they're if it's right for them and do a telehealth screening video chat which is they can do from the safety of their home and it costs the bill attack less um, than going and then we can help um, under you know process once a device is um, FDA listed we can process those claims um, with their reimbursement and get them ready to be fit. So we're kind of built, we're starting, we're replacing um, some of the conventions and the exposure. We're really trying to pull deep and, and reach new patients. Is that something that you can that you think will be useful going forward, even when we're out of this pandemic, assuming we get out Absolutely, of it? Absolutely, because, you know, so we have a cool guy on our team who has consulted with us for about four years, Rob Wadlick, and he is, lives with a C4 spinal cord injury, and he's also an engineer by training. So he's provided a great customer voice. When we have a 9 a.m. meeting, he wakes up at 4 to get ready wow. to be able to make our 9 a.m. meeting. So we, we quickly, we learned that, and we pushed it from 8 to 9 and, and are flexible, and he certainly can be called in today to our meeting and doesn't have to always be here. Um, but what that means, if you think about it, and when we talk to patients about their, um, their access to healthcare is so challenging just to get up and get ready to leave the house, not to mention traffic in a snowstorm mm-hmm. and then waiting in a, in a room, et cetera. So, Anything we can do to simplify it for the patients and make it easy helps. And likewise, for our um, clinician partners, we'll be able to help screen for them so that we can really focus on their time on a fitting of the device. I, that's actually some some good news that comes out of COVID-19. It, it, it kind of yeah. forced you to, to think about those things in advance, which are going to be helpful going forward. Yes, I think it'll be great. So I'm curious, Angie, for, for you and, and for your role in this, obviously this has become the, the mission of a lifetime. Do you, what is your favorite part of this job? Do you, do you like the innovation? Do you like raising money? Do you, you know, I mean, what, what part of it gets you the most excited? I love working with uh, the clinicians and the patients and delivering. I mean, that's the fun part. It's so much more fun to, like, be the deliverer of the good news, right, and mm-hmm. um, and show. And really what's unique at Abilitech is we have had such tremendous clinical response from our uh, clinical partners 
people want, recognize there's a huge need and they want to help. And what that means is doctors give me their personal cell phones. They'll come into our office when we ask them to give feedback on an issue or a question that we have on a design question. Um, They'll take time at night or during their day to provide feedback. And so it really feels uh, like I get to be part of their community at times. Uh, we we have not paid any physician or clinician to help us. They hmm. really um, make themselves available because they want to help their patient. And so, being part of that is uh, is really thrilling and and fun. Do you, you feel you feel close to the change? Sure, sure. Um, obviously, you have a lot of excitement in in the coming weeks and months as you finally you know get this out to the public. But then you, as the as the co-founder and and running this operation, are you already thinking about raising the next round of capital or the next product or, or what are the what are the things on your major to do list? Well, um, we'll be raising money uh, in quarter one or two of next year um, to be able to what we call growth capital to fund the growth of our company and future product development. So right now, um, I am focused on delivering and executing on this business plan. So right now, um, the challenge is to not challenge, but the focus is to get to market um, and and deliver and execute. And so it's an exciting time because it means building capacity. We hired the engineer. I hired a new VP of engineering um, this last month as well. So we have two new team members. Um, and then we're hiring a director of reimbursement and a VP of sales this next month. And so that is just... Uh, that's that's the exciting yeah. um, part where we get to start implementing and executing and moving toward a revenue and growth strategy. How big is the potential market for this product? Well, it depends upon what patient population uh, you address. Right now, we're addressing a muscular dystrophy and MS patient population because um, the and the portion that have hand function so they could benefit because we have an assist at the shoulder and at the elbow. And so we estimate about 10% of MS patients have hand function uh, but need shoulder and elbow. And about a third of muscular dystrophy patients still have hand function. And then um, we move, we are working on a hand device, a hand um, orthosis to be able to help bring and reach a broader market. So our initial market is 2 billion patients, or not billion patients, $2 billion. And about, um, and then the, the next um, patient population with the hand will grow that to about $7 billion because we'll be able to help more MS, more muscular dystrophy. All these patients are wheelchairs and spinal cord hmm. because most of the patients uh, most of the spinal cord patients that we are helping also need hand function, with the exception of central cord syndrome. And then um, the stroke market is where we're is is the real game, and uh, that is the big big market. When I founded Abilitech, I thought we were going after the stroke market uh, because it's a thirty billion dollar market opportunity. 
However, I learned we have a lot of work to do to um, address that and a lot of clinical studies to prove that we can be effective in that market. And so we'll slowly step in. We will do a stroke study later this year at Houston Methodist, which is a top 20 hospital in the U.S., uh, and that will help instruct future studies that we'll be doing um, in the subsequent years and and that will be uh, proportionately um, appropriate to be able to make the claims we need for stroke rehab. Stroke rehab, so it's important. There's two directives. One is do they have hand function and then we can help them if they need help with the shoulder and the elbow. Mm-hmm. Um, the other um, portion is that we can demonstrate right away that we can help these patients, the first market we get to. So 2 billion patients, we can help right, um, $2 billion market opportunity, we can help right away. And then stroke, this larger one, we're going to have to measure. They're not going to get help right away. They're going to, moving with intention and repetition, will build the neuroplastic healing. Patients will get stronger over time. And um, and so we'll be able to measure that over a three to six, probably six-month study um, to understand are these patients getting stronger and then, um, you know, which type of patients and what are the baseline and really refining who that market is. But I have yet to meet a, a clinician, a doctor, physician, nurse, whomever, that doesn't say within the first five minutes of understanding the Billitec technology, hey, can I use this on my stroke patients? This hmm. would be great for them. It'd be That's great amazing. for stroke rehab. Wow. So once we will start, we'll start measuring once we and then we'll do some appropriate clinical studies and then we'll go after the stroke market if it makes sense. And it is um, kind of the grand prize. It's, it's hmm. a huge market. So you, you've kind of got your work cut out for you for a while. Well, it's always good to have goals, right? <laughs> That's right. Absolutely. We, we we know where we're going, and it's really the interesting part is our current device that we're launching with will be able to handle help stroke patients right away. It'll be able to help them, and so it's not a huge, it's not a new product necessarily, um, which is the exciting part. And there are no ambulatory, no no. No devices currently that can really help a stroke patient in their home hmm. like ours could. So uh, it is, it's an exciting potential. It, is, um, it does have some reimbursement challenges that we plan to address over time, and it needs to be done in a thoughtful and measured way, and um, one that we can prove that it uh, saves the healthcare system money. Mm. Uh, it can't be additive. Yeah, that's that. That sounds like a challenge. That's for sure. Um, I, I'm curious, Angie. You, we do see so much innovation and so many cool things happening with with medical devices. Do you feel like most of the the big ideas right now are coming like yours from entrepreneurs and individuals, or is it still easier to to make advances within a larger company? Yeah, I think most of the larger, I mean, some of them have skunk works, but most of them where they developed, you know, um, new ideas, but most of those areas, I think the companies, they just can't move fast enough and Mm -hmm. they have such bureaucracy and people just don't have a wide enough aperture to really 
make an impact. I always say that I was a cog in a wheel at Medtronic. I had an inch wide and a mile deep Hmm. responsibility. And now you're kind of the wheel and you can move fast and you can cover a lot of more, a lot more material and, um, and faster. So I think most of it is happening in the smaller uh, companies, uh, certainly in med device. And some of this um, comes from universities that in that tech transfer department, um, you have to be careful of some of those tech transfer departments because they don't always have um, that customer interaction. It might be really technology driven, but not necessarily customer driven. Right. So, um, you know, uh, you I can think, be more nimble on your own. That innovation. Sorry. You, you can be more nimble on your own. You can be much more nimble and, and a lot faster. Yeah. With you, less money. I was going to say, you just have so to find there's money. There's a lot of sweat <laughs> equity. I don't, I don't, I couldn't work this hard for a big company. Right. Oh, that's a really good point. So. I, I'm curious, Angie, when you, when you sit back and you kind of reflect on everything that has happened and all of the places that your career took you that led to, to this moment, do you feel, do you feel like it was a, a lucky, you know, stroke that you were at Magic Arms and kind of found out about this need, which you might not have known about otherwise? Do you feel like you were kind of looking for that market need? And if it wasn't this product, it would have been something else? No, it was, it was luck. I mean, I was introduced to a problem and I am a problem solver at heart. And I kept trying to solve the problem within the confines of a nonprofit and we just didn't have the resources and the technology needed to be redone. So, um, you know, I went on to how do I make this happen and how do I make it happen for kids? Because yeah. there's this thing called pediatric orphan conditions, but it's rare that you can make a business um, on a very small market like children who are growing out of it. So with our technology, we're able to now we're taking this and scaling it to a pediatric size with the help of a grant. and. Um, and we'll make it accessible, which is really kind of completing the dream and servicing the need uh, for the Magic Arms population. It's just done in a different way. Right. Brings it full circle. Really amazing what you've managed to figure out and accomplish. And it's going to be a really big fall for Abilitech. It'll be uh, really fascinating to watch as this rolls out to the public. Thank you. Congratulations, Angie, on everything you've done. And thank you so much for for sharing your story with us. You bet. Thanks so much. And um, fun to be part of this discussion. And I'm hopeful that all these UST entrepreneur students, uh, you know, find, find a problem and create a solution and go after your dream. You'll, you'll have a lot of fun and learn just, um, you know, I'm I'm later in my career, but I have this. You know, the start the startup environment is full of challenges, and uh, it's a dynamic environment where you really uh, stretch yourself and are always learning, and it it can be just so much fun. Yeah. Well, great perspective. Thank you, Angie. Stick around. Next, we're going to go back to the classroom with the University of Saint Thomas Opus College of Business. Thanks, Angie. Thank you. I think when we say technology, most of us, especially those of us who are not technical, immediately think computers. But there's a lot of other technical advances going on, as we just heard in the story of Abilitech. 
For some more perspective, let's go back to the classroom with Dan McLaughlin. He's the director of the Center for Innovation in the Business of Healthcare in the Opus College of Business at the University of St. Thomas. Dan, what did you think about Abilitech? Were you familiar with this company? No, I didn't know about it till I heard your interview, um, but it's a pretty exciting company. I'm very impressed. So what jumped out to you about what they're doing? I mean, I'm still trying to wrap my head around how this works, this arm assist device for people who don't have the ability to, to, to raise their arm. Well, one of the things that I really like about the story that she didn't talk about much, but she had some pretty good engineers, it sounds like, working with her, and that is emerging technologies. Um, one of the things we are studying here at St. Thomas with due to a, a grant from the JHR Foundation is all the new technologies coming along beyond computers. And that includes two pretty exciting things in this device, I think, motors and sensors. Do you think about the motors that move those arms very delicately and the sensors where the patient are just moving their fingers slightly and they're then mo- motivating them or getting the motors to work right? That's pretty exciting. And, uh, and the effect of that is just amazing. And that's not just using motors in a different way. You're saying that that's really inventing something new. Right. It's the real kind of classic engineering about getting all the right parts together. There is, I'm sure, some little microprocessor in there. But to have the sensor, you know, uh, go to some computer program that's in the in the motors and then having that activate the arm so it looks natural, that's just amazing work. Are we seeing breakthroughs like that all the time? I mean, is it just sort of any, you know, new things every year or does it kind of go in spurts? How does that work? Well, I think um, the technologies move kind of in different kind of steps. And so you might have the computer technology get real big and like, you know, the whole thing about going to cloud computing and some of the things we've seen. Uh, that's kind of stable now. Now you're looking at kind of some things called edge computing, where the computers are actually out in the devices rather than the cloud. And that's kind of what I think we're seeing in in technology like um, this particular company. So um, it's going to jump around different places, but you got to keep your finger on all the different parts of the technology. And in this case, I was impressed with motors and sensors. Yeah, very exciting. Um, But at the end of the day, motors and sensors comes down to the what they do for humans, especially the humans who who don't have some of these basic functions. It's kind of amazing. Yeah, I mean, I was really impressed with her story about um, with her patient, one of her first patients and the care provider and. They started using it and they both started to cry and then they all started to cry. That's the best part of healthcare. That's just wonderful. That's a great, why it's a great industry to be in because you get to make those human connections and really change people's lives. It's really exciting. Yeah, that's what it's all about. Well, thank you, Dan, for your perspective and thank you to our sponsor, the University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business. Thanks to you for listening to By All Means. We hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, take a minute to rate and review us. It really helps the podcast and we hope you'll tune in for more episodes. Thanks for listening to By All Means. Teamwork to make by all means, and we've got some all stars. Thanks to our audio engineer, Tom Ferlitti. Digital support is Ricky Hannigan and Dan Nepo. Thanks to the University of St. Thomas Senior Media Relations Manager, Vanita Sakar, and Associate Dean of the Schultz School of Entrepreneurship, Laura Dunham, for all their help. Our theme music is by Songfinch. Hope you enjoyed by all means.